Around Comics, Episode 48B. Chicago, this is Around Comics, a weekly roundtable discussing topics in and around the world of comics. I'm your host, Christopher Neesman, and I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime and the co-host of Around Comics, Mr. Brian Salazar. What? Where am I? <laughs> what am I doing here? It's Friday night. It's almost Friday Saturday morning. morning. Tired. Friday night's all right for <sighs> podcasting. <laughs> and next is the straw that stirs the drink. Our Around Comics regular, Mr. Tom Caters. Hey, what's up? How's it going? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the second part of our Greg Rucka interview, and we have a couple other nuggets that we're going to put at the... The Ruckathon. Of, yes, the Ruckathon. I'm getting rucked. <laughs> Didn't you use uh, that joke on Monday? I no. wanted to be more like wrecked, but then I realized Rucks. that. Uh, Go ruck yourself. <laughs> ruck yourself. <laughs> Check yourself before you ruck yourself. Nice. We're, so everyone knows we're also going to be talking with uh, Mr. Chris Somney <laughs> yes. a little bit later. And uh, Tom. I don't know. He's not old enough to be called Mr. He's like 11 and a the, half. The young whelp, Chris Somney. Yes. Young. He's just a talented young man. Yes, we hate him. Hmm. So he is fantastic. Uh, Tom, we you also him, have a special uh, special interview with uh, one of the stars of the Marvel Universe. Yes, Black Bolt. It's short <laughs> and um, I think very informative. This is your first uh, encounter with Black Bolt? You've never read? I don't think I'd You didn't really know all the emails. anything about were, him. They were fucking love. <laughs> he likes to write. The huh? guy likes to write. Yeah. Man, Interesting. word choice. Wasn't, oh. wasn't quite the interview you were No, it was for? not, Chris. <laughs> Significantly shorter than our other interviews. <laughs> all right. Uh, also, Around Comics is recorded every Friday from 7 to 9-ish at Dark Tower or, Comics. Or 11.45. At Dark Tower Jesus. Comics and Collectibles, located at 4835 Northwestern Avenue in Chicago. I've heard you say that so many times, I now have that burned yeah, in your brain. You notice that it's never on the script, right? <sighs> never, we're never, we're never done at 9 o'clock. I don't know why the fuck we say that at the beginning of every show. Yeah, we've never been done at <laughs> never All been right, done if at you're nine. in the area, please drop by. We would love to meet you. Speaking of Dark Tower, Dark Tower, Word Balloon, and Around Comics are proud to announce the Chicago Minicon on October 14th from 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock. We will welcome some of Chicagoans best and brightest for a signing at Dark Tower. You can meet Bill Reinhold, Francesco, Michael Avery, Dave Wachter, Mike Huddleston, Scott Johnson, Jason Malay, Raphael Nieves, Steve Bryant, Tom Kelly, Lynn Cody, Doug Yeah, Bobby, yeah, and okay, more. okay. Go to the website. Aroundcomics.com events. Oh, You'll right. see it there. Um, Boo, September contest cranky. will be all wrapped up tomorrow. Go play some trivia. Yeah. Uh, if you're just doing it now, too bad. The hotline? 1-888-65-GKSB is cool as Krista... Cracker? What the heck was her last name? I can't remember. Krista from Chicago. We'll simply refer to as Krista. Thank you. Shopping around comics. Long box of love. Shopping Brian Bowles, amazing webcomic. 
the Frapper Map. Please sign up for that. Spread the AC love. Download our listener LCS Challenge flyer and get that put up in your comic book shop. We would appreciate it. Make a stance living and spray paint it on the street. <laughs> and we will mention the shop on the show. The you just made us liable for graffiti. Power to the people. Podcast alley reviews, <laughs> iTunes music reviews, do all that fun, fun stuff. Let's go help listen to the you. second half of Greg Rucka. Rucka 2. Go. You're out of lucka. <laughs> <laughs>On one of your other series, which I loved, and that was Gotham Central, and that that's a series that I feel that the wait for the trade, and we're talking about internet, you know, communities, and kind of how the how the industry has evolved. I think that Gotham Central was a series that the wait for the trade mentality really may have hurt that series, and killed us dead. Yeah, killed us dead. If the trades had been aggressively put out. You know, if we had had that first trade by the time issue 12 was canned, Gotham Central would still be coming out. You mean issue 12, which was the end of the Eisner Award-winning story, Half-A-Life? Ass-kissing, yeah. everyone drink. <laughs> yes. Well, well, 12 actually wasn't the end of that story, but it did win an Eisner, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it ended in 10, I believe. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, but, you know, that is... I just think that, yeah, if, if the trades had been coming out, I think we would have had a larger readership. If we had a larger readership, I think there would have been uh, more critical attention, and I think there would have been, I think, frankly, I think both Michael and Ed would have stayed at D.C. Well, that was another interesting case of, of, of a kind of a non-traditional writing style for, not, not style, but situation. Uh, you have experience now splitting a book with Ed Brubaker with Gotham Central. You are writing with three other writers on 52 and whenever you were working on Batman, you kind of came in on No Man's Land. So you have been on several projects now where it's a multi-writer situation. What what is that like? Well, I mean... It's a collaborative medium, you know, and at the best of times, you have great collaboration. And when that happens, you are creating something that is going to be more than the sum of its parts. When it goes badly, you get crap. Um, And I have seen both. Um, No Man's Land worked very well, uh, but it worked very well primarily because the editorial guidance for the project was superlative. Um, Jordan Gorfinkel and Darren Vincenzo and Joe Village and Benny, all those guys, you know, were on the stick for that. And they were there and they made sure the trains ran on time for, to use an unfortunate term of phrase, I suppose, (laughs) so that so that that collaboration was really less of um, the, the times that the, the writers came together to work on things in concert were fairly limited for No Man's Land. Um, we worked off of an, uh, an outline that Gorfinkel had prepared. And and then from there we, we sort of we elaborated on it and we got together I think twice to, to discuss it further. But we were working off of a framework that had been that had been established. 
So, and that's, I mean, that was a great collaboration. It worked very well. 52 is very much like that. Countdown was, is, was very much like that as well, because, um, meaning that they've been really good collaborations. Though, in, in both of those cases, uh, less editorially directed. Countdown had more of an editorial hand because it was very deliberately sort of the linchpin you know, to everything that was going to happen to follow it. So we had to accomplish certain things in the book. Um, with 52, it's just, you know, it's, it's been four and a half writers, basically. Um, you know, and, and I say half because, uh, you know, I throw in Keith, um, but that's not even an accurate count because Keith has actually contributed a lot. JG has contributed a lot. Steve contributed a hell of a lot, you know, and that was, but at the end of the day, it's 52 has been the four of us exchanging ideas pretty freely. But and now that's all going to fall apart because your editor's gone, right? Yeah, oh, no, it's a, it's a total wreck. <laughs> no, we're, we're only going to get 46, aren't we? Yeah. It's going to be... We're, we're, we're stopping at 38 now. 52 right. is going to be a 100-page spectacular. <laughs> Number 52. <laughs> well, well no, talk... You know, I mean, 50, 52 is going to be fine. And this is the... You know, Giffen, Giffen said early on, people are watching 52 like NASCAR. They're waiting for the crash. Oh, yeah. Um, but 52 ain't going to crash, guys. It's, it's going to be there. You can't say that because you're only on 38. <laughs> yeah. We're watching. Well, Did you read the news this week? <laughs> we're gonna keep. We're gonna hit week fifty-two. It'll happen, and every week it's gonna be there, barring something, you know, like oh, I don't know, catastrophic snowstorm, blankets, clavicore, you know, or whatnot. The book's gonna be there. Um. So going all the way back on the collaboration question, um, working with Brubaker. On Gotham Central is a lot like working on a smaller, much smaller, simpler version of 52, you know? Because he and I would, uh, on the stories that we wrote together, we'd get on the phone, and we'd break the story down, and then we'd divvy up pages, you know? And then we'd write, and we'd pass them back and forth, and it was just, it was just pure joy. It was just great to work with him. Um, and that's what 52 is like, just on a much grander and far more intricate scale, I guess. Now, when the collaboration goes badly, um, i.e., name any number of DC crossover events that followed No Man's Land prior to Infinite Crisis, and <laughs> the car crash, you know, where people don't come in and they don't play well with others and so on. And this is a pet peeve of mine. I mean, we're working on work for higher stuff. You know, if, if DC has hired you to write Batman, they are trusting you with a character that is so much bigger than you. You know, I mean, over Marvel, they say, well, here's Spider-Man, take the reins. That's the, the, they're, they're making a, a deal with you. They're saying, you get to take the Porsche out. Don't crash it. And you don't then get the bitch because they didn't let you crash it. You know what I mean? Well, they didn't let me write the story where Batman had both his legs chopped off and raped the goat. <laughs> um, that was going to be the best Batman story ever. It's like, oh gosh, why do you think they would have stopped you from doing that? Is that a Grant Morrison uh, story? Yeah, that's an Elseworld uh, story. Wait, you think that's Grant? 
<laughs> no, oh. no, maybe it's Enos. I don't know. <laughs> um, hey, speaking of Ed Brubaker, though, um, and we had him on the show. Oh, I love that nice segue. <laughs> speaking of Ed Brubaker. Speaking of Ed Brubaker. And dead goats. And, and raped goats. Um, uh, we had him on the show not too long ago, and I threw something out at him that, that is one of my dreams. And so, since we have you on the show, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna mention it to you also. Because we think you would be perfect for it, uh, also. I, like I'm it. hoping that some point in the future we see a collab another collaboration between you and Ed on a Marvel book, uh, and and uh, it would be the Invaders. And I'd love to see you and him write an Invaders book about you know the what he's sort of brought to the Bucky character specifically, uh, and and going off on that. You know more so, and and while that's just my own dream, are there any Marvel characters, or can you foresee you ever working for Marvel, doing anything for Marvel, that kind of thing? Oh, I, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I don't say never anymore. I've, I've said never too many times to, you know, I'm not that old, and I've said never too many times, and already been called a fool. Well, I'll never do a podcast. Um, <laughs> yes, I'll never do a podcast again. I'm never going to be on a round college. <laughs> you said that? I'm honored. <laughs> you're recording still, but you're new bumper. Um, <laughs> I'll never be on a But um, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure something will, I'm sure there is something out there that would, that would entice me. I've been so remarkably fortunate. I've been in comics for about eight years, really. I mean, mainstream, been working about eight years. Wow. And in that time, I've gotten to write just about every single big gun there is at both companies. Um, I've had the opportunity to make just about every iconic character say stuff that I wrote. And that's, in, in only... In only one case was that a deliberate pursuit. In, in almost every other, it was the right place, the right time, and being offered the gig and and accepting it. You know, and saying, sure, that would be so cool. Were you always a, so, com- uh, a comic book? You know, I, I would love to work with that again, and I'd love to work with Michael again. Oh, that's uh, awesome. I think Michael is a remarkable talent. Um, and I think when Ed is on, there's nobody like Ed, so... And you'd love to work on the Invaders. Yes, and on the Invaders. Yeah. <laughs> um, were you always a comic? I would entertain it. I would entertain the idea. <laughs> all right, all right. That's all I need to hear. I, my my dream, my hopes and dreams are still alive. Then, um, yeah. were you always a comic book fan? I mean, you you came into comics from being a novelist. I mean, you were, or I should say, you were a novelist before you wrote comics. Were you a yeah. comic book fan? And and how did you get into comics, writing comics? Yeah, I was a comic book fan from. Early, I mean, I I remember, I remember being quite young and finding like those Archie Digest sizes, and you know, in the checkout line of the supermarket, and then finding little Marvel Digest sizes in black and white, of like you know, uh, the Origin of the Incredible Hulk and things like that, like literally reprints of the first six issues of the Hulk, um, but done in like little little pocket black and white, and. So I came to them early, and I, I was always a reader. You know, most writers are, and, and I was reading early, and I was reading voraciously. But I think the thing that really tipped it, it's weird, because there are times when I, I try to track it, and I go, like, was it this moment or this moment? Or And I can't point to any single one. I know that there are a couple things that happen. I know that um, I have an older sister 
who has Down syndrome. And when we were growing up, this is going to date me beautifully, um, The Incredible Hulk was on TV. And that was the Lou Ferrigno Bill Bixby. And my sister was so in love uh, with... Bill Bixby? The whole show. I mean, the whole concept of the show. Both Bill and, and the Hulk. And she would call him Bixby Bill, but she would call him also David, right? Because he was David Banner in the show. And it took me a long time to figure out what was going on there, but in, in many ways, the, the TV version was the ideal guy because you had Bill Bixby who was always kind and always gentle and always caring and always sweet. And then if he were threatened, he turned into this incredibly powerful, angry force who would never, ever hurt you. You know, that was the trademark of the show, is that the Hulk only did harm to bad people. Um, so, I mean, he's the ideal fantasy protector. But I remember being about 10 and finding a comic book store uh, in, in my hometown of Monterey, California, and going in and seeing a copy of the Incredible Hulk magazine. These were stories written by Doug Mensch. Um, they had these Moon Knight backups, and thinking that my sister would love it, or at least using that as the justification to get it, because I'm sure that I bought it as much for myself as for her. Um, and Brandy, you know, my sister had no interest in it at all, because it wasn't a TV show, it was on the same thing. And I remember pouring over that comic and trying to copy panels and discovering quite quickly that I couldn't draw to save my life. Um, so that, that's very... That's a very clear connection, right, to a book. And then a couple years later, uh, I switched schools and I fell in with what at that time were really a group of Marvel zombies. Um, and they were all X-Men zombies at that. And they sort of reintroduced me to comics. And as a result of that, then I started my own uh, voyage of discovery. I was going in and I would start buying stuff that they weren't reading. That was how I found uh, the Miller Master Kelly Born Again stuff on Daredevil. And that was the book that did it. Once I read that, there was no going back. You know, I was like, holy mackerel. That hooked me. And I read pretty consistently from that point was high school all the way through college. And then I graduated college and became very, very poor. And um, Hardly ever happens. happens. Jen and I got married, and I was going to grad school in L.A. I was going to grad school at USC, and we were literally so poor. I mean, we were on financial aid. We were living in a rotten part of town. We went through three cars in nine months. We had, like, the worst luck. Like, the first car got stolen. The second car got totaled by a drunk driver. The third car, literally, the engine mounts broke, and the engine dropped out. You know, we were hemorrhaging what money we had. But every week, we would save up all our pennies, and we would get into whatever car we had that worked, and we would drive the ridiculously long time it seemed to take to get out to, to, um, to Santa Monica. We would go to Heidi Hill Comics, and we would buy comic books. And after I graduated from USC, I worked at a comic shop in Monterey where we were wait, waiting for uh, Jen to figure out where she was going to go for graduate school. I worked at... Um, uh, a comic store in Monterey, and then, you know, we ended up moving up to Oregon, because that's where Jen went to grad school. So I was always reading, you know, I, I was always reading comics. 
Um, and in college, I tried to write one. I had a friend who actually still works in D.C. Uh, who, who drew it and then informed me after drawing the first issue that there was no way he was going to draw the second, and it was it had been fun, but that was that. <laughs> and I remember being brutally disappointed by that. I was like, oh, oh, oh I wanted this to come out. <laughs> you know, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny because I still think that there is an impression by a lot of comic book fans out there that, well, what does this Rucka guy know? He's just a novelist, and now he's writing my comic book heroes. That that there's maybe this he's a filthy prose writer, this prose guy. <laughs> Dirty prose writer. Might as, yeah. might as well be a fucking Being poet. Sir, we're so we're filthy prosy. Oscar Wilde never wrote a comic book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're probably right. But you know, I, I, so, sometimes I get that feeling, and I, I, which leads me to the next thing is that we're starting to see a lot of writers come from other mediums, whether it's. Um, novelist TV. or TV or movies or whatever, and and I think that this feeling of comic book fans of there are these people from other mediums coming in and they may be good writers, but do they understand you know this medium that I love now? I, you know we fast you know we, if we had fast forwarded your career to now that you know eight years ago when you started writing comics and we put it in today's comic culture, I can see you making that direct jump from novels to mainstream books, but you didn't do that. Yeah, you, ca- mean, they, you, you came I was, and threw I was lucky, at least in as much as nobody knew my novels. You know, I mean, the only person who knew my novels was Denny O'Neill, you know, which is how I got the gig, really. Um, I think that there's a legitimacy to looking at people from, people who do drive, what I call drive-bys. You know, that's not cool. You don't do a drive-by on a character, especially in something that is as continuity-heavy as, as comics, you know. I'm not going to... To give somebody the right to come in, for instance, and say, okay, well, Mr. Movie Guy, you can do six issues of Batman, and in those six issues, you are going to change everything. And then you're going to go away and leave it for the rest of us to clean up, I think, is cheating. You know, sure. um, I can I can write the story uh, where Batman dies. You know what I mean? Or I can write the story, uh, you know, where Superman and Lois finally have a baby. Everybody can write that story. That doesn't take talent. All right, it really doesn't. Doing it well does. But if you're going to change continuity, and that's what stories like that do then you're obligated to stick around and tell the rest of the story. It's one of the reasons why, I mean, as a side note, it's one of the reasons why I, I, I hate the fact that I'm not writing Wonder Woman anymore. I understand why uh, why Alan's on the book and Terry's on the book. I understand all the reasons for it and the relaunch. But it bothers me that I wrote the story where she killed Max Lord and I never got to write the rest of it. That's a drive-by to me. That's unresolved. And I wanted to resolve it, and um, I, I don't have that opportunity. And it doesn't sit well with me, you know. I, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have tolerated it from another writer. I shouldn't tolerate it from myself. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, you can see that the industry doesn't necessarily allow it. Hi, I'm Ed Brubaker. When I'm not waiting for the trade, I like to listen to a Round Comics podcast. 
Now, we do have a, uh, a question from our forum. Um, we actually have two sure. questions we, we that have, are yeah. very pertinent to what you just said. So I'm going to go with the Bring first one. Uh, first one's from uh, Paper Cut in Minnesota, Minnesota. <laughs> which is... Um, Paper Cut? Yes. Yeah, one of those internet names. Uh, <laughs> what would be more satisfying to you as a writer, hitting number one on the New York Times bestseller list or hitting number one on the Diamond Top 300? What do you think of Brad Meltzer's accomplishment? Oh, I, I, uh, in all sincerity, I'm, I'm jealous as hell. <laughs> um, I, I would love, and I think anybody would, I would love to be able to say that my work is is, is that well-received and that well-respected, you know? Um, it's a remarkable accomplishment, and Brad should be very, very proud. Um, you know, I haven't had a chance to read Book of Fate yet, but knowing Brad, I suspect it is an expertly crafted novel. Um, but could you read it for enjoyment? <laughs> you can't. Yeah, you know what? Ask me again in another year. All right. Uh, right now, it would be like, is this research? Do I need anything in here to make sure I know what's going on? Oh, look, he's dead. Okay, great. Next. You know, um... Oh, it's sad. <laughs> well, the, the second question that deals with what you were just talking about, this is from D-Man, who's a huge Wonder Woman huge fan. Huge Wonder and Woman fan. And he called us out for not asking John Byrne about Wonder Woman. I forgot that John Byrne wrote Wonder Woman and yeah. did anything else. So here's his <laughs> question. Yeah, you, 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 That's you, a straight line, dude. I'm not even taking I'm not even touching that. <laughs> <laughs> his yeah. question is sacrifice-related. Wonder Woman killing, and in my opinion, justly so, Maxwell Lord, and have... And having it broadcast to the world was a major turning point in her life. Creatively speaking, what br- brought about this amazing storyline? Um, there's there's an actual story to that, um, which is I had felt it, it it was a long journey for me to to write Wonder Woman, and I said earlier that there was really there's really only ever been one job that I actively pursued. And that's not true. There were two. Um, I, I chased down the, the Captain America job um, when they when they were going to relaunch it, I think, in a, under the Max line, or no, under Marvel Knights, uh, and, and I didn't get that job. Um, that went to uh, John David Reaver. And then the other job that I chased was Wonder Woman. I wanted to write Wonder Woman. And it took a long time before I actually things got into position for me to do it. But one of the things I had very early on sort of a vision of was this story where Diana was going to kill somebody and that she was going to do it um, that, that, that it was going to be a judge, jury, and executioner story. It was going to be here's this woman who has the wisdom of Athena and has a rope that tells her if you're lying or not. And I wanted to do a story where there was going to be a crime that was just a heinous human crime. It would have been like a Matthew Shepard in Wyoming kind of thing. And that somehow or other Diana would become involved in the investigation only to discover that the, the individuals responsible, not only were they guilty and unrepentant, but they weren't going to be, there was no way they would ever be caught for the crime. You know, the, the idea would be to structure the plot so that no matter what was done, there was no way they would be arrested. Even, you know, if, if you use the lasso to induce a confession, that's compelling confession under duress. It's, it's an admissible, inadmissible. So there would be no way 
to do it within the legal system. And that, and then faced with this, and faced with, say, these three individuals that she looks at, and she goes, you, you know, you're really monsters. You're not people. You look like people, and you talk like people, and, and you move like people, but you're monsters dressed up as people. Um, she would take it upon herself to slay the monsters. And then, and, and do so because she felt this is what had to be done. You know, that, that it had to be, that these, these three or however many of the world made it clear that, you know, not only were they unrepentant, they'd do it again. Um, and then, what I, the way I saw the story was that you would put the narrative, and you'd see, you'd be the poor cop. You know, you'd find the poor cop, you'd find the three guys out in the woods with their heads cleanly chopped off or whatnot, and lo and behold, you're the one who eventually, eventually have to call up the Daily Planet and say, does anybody know a way to get in touch with Superman? And I'm Detective Collins from, you know, the Fort Wayne or wherever I am, police department. I, I need Superman to help to serve a warrant. Um, you know, <laughs> and then the scene where you knock on the embassy door and say, I'm scared I have a warrant here for your arrest. And, you know, the first thing, you had the right to remain silent, and she would say, yes, I understand. You know, did you kill these men? And she would say, yes. I mean, she's never going to lie. Um, and then do the rest of the story, you know, do the story that way. So I, and I came in and I pitched something similar, and every editor I pitched it to, their eyes got big as saucers, and they're like, can you tell the story with Artemis instead? We <laughs> <laughs> love the story, just not with these characters. You do it with Hippolyta instead, you know, <laughs> Elseworld story. Don't tell it That's exactly it, and I'd be like, well, no, the whole point is it's a Diana story. And um, they're like, well, you can't. Now, first, a million years, can you do that? And... Then we started working on Infinite Crisis, and we knew that one of the things that had to lead to the crisis was this breakdown in the Trinity, that all three of them had to commit what, at least to the others, and in some cases to themselves, were grievous sins that would pretty much break the friendship. And that, combined with my belief that the were things that Diana would kill for. Um, that that was one of the things that really, really differentiated her from Batman and Superman, was that she moved in the world with a very different understanding of violence, you know? Um, she comes from a warrior and martial culture, and they can't believe in peace and love peace and do everything they can to preserve peace, but they're Amazons who play bullets and bracelets. They're a martial culture. And she grows up in a culture that, for that reason, teaches whenever you use violence, there's a chance somebody will die. Even if you are trying not to kill them, there's a chance they will die, because the nature of violence is that it is random. You cannot control them. So if you punch somebody, you can kill them, even if you don't mean to. And she knows that. And I think in a way that Batman absolutely won't accept that. Um, and Superman, you know, especially given, um, you know, the, the, the history there uh, of having killed himself, meaning having committed the act, not having killed himself, um, <laughs> and, and the self-loathing he carries for it, it separated her out in a very, I thought, 
important way. Well, the- um, and a lot of, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about Diana as a character because it struck me that she had suffered. And to this day, she still suffers from, she's the also-man of the DCU. You know, she's, she's not as strong as Superman. She's not as smart as Batman. She's not as fast as Flash. You know what I mean? She, she, she was always defined by what she isn't. She's the Mar- she's the Marsha Brady of the big three. <laughs> yeah, and I hated that. And it was very important to me to know the things that she was. Or not Marsha Jan. You're sorry, get sorry, the Jan, the Jan. Jan. The Jan Brady. Sorry, the people internet are people are going to come get me. This. <laughs> They're already exploding. They, you don't yeah. know what you're talking about. Well, I think I think one of the most, and, and hearing you say it, I, I hadn't really thought about it beforehand, but now looking back at it, one of the most interesting things thinking about it is is that of those big three, of, of Batman, Superman, and her, she's really the only one that could have made that decision and never been remorseful of it. I mean, once she made the decision to kill Maxwell Lord, that was it. She knew she was right. Yeah, no, and, and even... She could regret having done it. This is the way I saw it. And, and, and I, to this day, I labor to avoid saying whether or not I think she did the right thing. Because, frankly... It's almost irrelevant what I think. The issue is out there for people to debate, precisely for them to debate it. But she made the decision she felt she had to make, and she will live with it. And she does it knowing full well what she's doing. And I do think, you know, for Max in that moment, he goes, oh, shit. It's that kind of I gambled on the wrong one. And, yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly... I mean, she's not going to second guess herself unlike a batman even though you know he he's very strong in his convictions he's human and he doesn't have the, yeah. the you know the well it's funny you know just and i went several rounds on this because i think for jeff and and jeff jeff represents i think a certain readership in that the moment she does that, she crosses a line and they, and it makes her for lack of a better word a villain she can no longer be a superhero him, and, and I don't think he ever forgave her for it, which was funny. <laughs> it was a question of what I did, I think, you know, because I didn't, I didn't do anything in this instance that the other writers weren't aware of. But I think that Jeff didn't forgive her, and one of the things that Jeff kept coming back to was that Diana has to learn how to be human. She, she's never connected with humanity. She has to be human. And I found myself going, looking at her and being like, what are you on about? You know, that's not her problem. That has never been her problem. That has never, ever been her problem. She's Her been... problem is she doesn't belong anywhere. Her problem is she doesn't belong. She's I mean, a wom- that woman goes without all the way a country. Back to the golden age. Yeah. I mean, that goes all the yeah, way back it, to. It's not, a question, it's not a question of learning how to be human. It's that it doesn't matter. She can want to be human while she wants. But she's got the beauty of Aphrodite and the wisdom of Athena and the grace of Artemis and so on and so forth and so on. Guess what? You know what? Cindy Crawford never had a day in her life. You know, as an adult supermodel, where people weren't aware she was Cindy Crawford. You know what I mean? You can't hide it. And even if she could hide it and put on all, you know, <laughs> even if pick, you know, I, uh, my problem, I don't get out enough. <laughs> pick, 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 your, pick your actress of choice at the moment, you know, and 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 fine. They, you know, they can put on a ball cap and sunglasses. They still know. And they know they're different. Diana can never go home. 
You know, every character, one of the things that makes the characters heroic is, their, is, is pathos. Batman's pathos is that every night he goes out there trying to make sure nobody dies, and every night he fails. Every night. Because there's no way he can succeed. Gotham's too big. Right. He's going to stop the mugging down in Tri-Corner while somebody's going to get popped up and burned. He can't be two places at once. But that doesn't stop him from going out every night to try. And he doesn't hate himself because he can't succeed. He knows, you know, he knows what he's trying to do. And he knows the, the, the folly of it. And I think Superman's pathos is that Superman is, Superman is Pinocchio. You know, Superman wants to be human. He wants to be the real boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just yeah. want to be a real he boy. Wants, yeah. He wants to be a real boy. And it, Diana's tragedy is that it's not that she wants to be human; it's that she wants to she wants to belong, and she can't belong anywhere because as soon as she leaves the mascara, she can never go home again. She can visit, but she's never going to be able to settle down and live there. So, because she has experienced the world, right? Well, you and can't, you can't go home that again. Her sisters haven't seen, and by the same token, humanity's never going to accept her. Right? And it's never going to accept her. So, do you feel then that that moment was her choosing to be who she is, or accepting who she is? Is that sort of that moment was her being absolutely true to herself? But. You know, I always viewed that what she did, she did because she loves Cal. And she loves Cal, not, it's not romantic. I'm one of those people who never, has a, uh, uh, I've never gone that way. I, I just don't believe it. I, I, I see Superman and, <laughs> Superman and Wonder Woman are friends, and they're like best friends. And in that way, she loves him like a brother, and this was her saving her brother. She was making the choice Superman wouldn't ever make. Well, Exactly, and she knew exactly the price she would pay for it when she did it. She doesn't know about Brother Einstein, but she knows that she is killing their friendship when she does this. Hmm. You know? Well, um, all right then. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm just hey, question sort of, answered. Yeah, I'm just a little. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and, and read. <laughs> well, well, should at least assure people that we didn't do anything willy nilly. We clearly thought about it. You yeah. thought you thought about <laughs> it? You mean really? No you question. Didn't, didn't, no, no I'm going to have Diana kill someone. That sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, arbitrary. Hey, look, there have been people who've done that. Sure. Well, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of that. There are a lot of comics out there, and there are a couple writers in particular who write entirely for. You know what would look cool? And I don't want knives. what would look cool if it doesn't make sense. Right. Well, you know, we've talked about Diana, and I want to. I never ask a, a parent to choose between their children, but there's. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you. But, but, he's but, going to ask you. But there's there's another female character that I think that you have a very strong emotional tie to, and that's that's Tara Chase. And right in Diana and right in Tara, I see them as being kind of similar in your approach to them sometimes. Just the the very strong. What about Renee? Oh, and Renee Montoya. You wanted to ask a Renee question? Was that is that what you were? No, going I was going to ask him a fifty-two question. Oh, ask him a fifty-two question. Well, Good it could Lord. be a long answer though. Okay, we'll come back to Tara and Diana. All right. In just a I, well, second. I wanted to I wanted to 
because for my own information, I, I with 52 and the the collaboration between all these terrific writers, could you give us sort of a, a, a breakdown a little bit about how that process is working? In other words, like you know, who's taking what responsibilities or how you know how is that working you between getting, like, you know arguments? Well, no, not so much that, but just that's what I want to know. Who's writing? You know, are, are you choosing certain characters to write and then? Trying to fit those stories together, or how is that working? There's sort of, there's sort of an unspoken fifty two rule, which is um, what, what <laughs> we don't we don't talk to, to who does what, but there's a reason for that, which is and this sounds pokey, but it's true. I mean, I type, and I use the word precisely here. I type a lot of the Montoya Vic stuff. Um. But that stuff tends to be, you know, like everything else in 52, is written by all of us. You know, we have these conference calls where we story check and we say, okay, well, let's break down the next four weeks that we have to write. And, okay, what's happening in the Ralph story here? And we look at the notes and we say, okay, well, Ralph is supposed to be here, here, and here. Um... What needs to happen there? And Grant will say, well, we talked about this. And Mark will say, well, this has to happen. And we'll go back and forth. And, okay, how's it going to happen? And then once it gets hammered out, it'll be like, uh, Mark, you want to do that? Sure, yeah, I'll write that. How many pages will you need in week 30 for that? Um, you know what? I only need two in week 30, but in week 34, I'm going to need six. Can we do that? And, and, and it works like that, if that makes sense. How do we get so, it on this conference call? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you don't. <laughs> we don't want We him. don't. But we don't, don't want really it for me. But I, will, but I will tell you, there will be at some point uh, on the 52 website, uh, the Daily Planet 52 website, which I'm sure you guys are seeing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the specials is actually going to be some, uh, should be some audio. Oh, um, oh that's cool. Of our conferences at some point. That's so. really cool, actually, yeah. Um, and, and honestly, that's how it works. So, I mean, I can say that I can say that I'm writing, you know, John Henry, but it's a little disingenuous because it makes it seem like anything that happens in the John Henry stuff is I came up with, and that's not true, you know. We all come up with it together, and we all bounce it off of each other. There was, I, was, I went on vacation, in quotes, at the beginning of July, and I spent most of the vacation... Uh, struggling with what I had to write in 52. And I ended up calling Wade like three times when I was out on the Oregon coast. And I kept calling him and being like, ah, I'm stuck on this. I've been trying to work this out. You know, and he'd be, he'd say, you're on vacation. I'd say, well, yes, I know. <laughs> and then we'd talk for an hour, you know. And I have conversations like that with Jeff. I don't have conversations like that with Grant as much because Grant's in Scotland. Um, and it's an expensive call. But <laughs> at the conference calls, you bet. You know, when DC's paying for that, you bet he gets he gets fined. <laughs> and um, and we do it to each other. I mean, we you know, uh, Mark has called me, and Jeff has called me, and Jeff talks to Mark, and Mark talks to Grant. I mean, we are all writing it together. Have you guys so, had to tie Grant down and keep him from going absolutely bonkers on this? I mean, have you had to put reins on him? Because he's known for being a little wonky. <laughs> well, but the thing, the, thing about, the thing about Grant 
that I've come to understand, this is the first time I really worked with him, is that Grant really sees, he sees the universes, you know, and there's all this stuff about how Grant believes this is alive and that, and, and it's unfair because it makes it seem like Grant's a nut, and he's not. What he does is he believes in the merit of the work. And in as much as, you know, the DC universe is a living, breathing universe. And I can prove that to you because guess what? Booster Gold died and a whole bunch of people lost their shit. <laughs> I'll never read DC Comics again. <laughs> if it wasn't living and breathing, you wouldn't, you know, those people wouldn't have cared. So one of the things that Grant does, and he does it beautifully, I mean, it is a gift, is he can look at a story and he can go, well, you know, and he'll throw out an idea or a concept that never in a million years would I have thought of. I mean, really, never in a million years. And you go, oh, that is so cool. And then Grant's biggest flaws, and then he goes, yeah, that's a good one. And then he moves on to the next idea. He doesn't finish it. He leaves it there. So you're sitting there going, but, but okay, but, but you've got to make it work now, Grant. <laughs> and he goes, oh. <laughs> I don't. I don't do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then you drag him back and like, okay, can you explain this? You know, wasn't it his uh, idea for the whole revelation with Skeets? I think I read that somewhere that it was like an idea he, he threw out. He, he had. He said something in a very early on, and all of us kind of you could hear us like all drop our pencils and so on and be like, <laughs> oh, that's good. And he does that with alarming frequency. <laughs> It's a moment, I mean, he came up with what I think is one of the cleverest things that we revealed in 50 Tales. And then, you know, we let it go for a while because we didn't have to resolve it. We had a conversation about six weeks ago talking about how we were going to start bringing it back in. And we looked back at early issues that have been written and we discovered that without ever meaning to, meaning without ever getting together and saying, well, we need to do this, this, and this, we have laid all the groundwork we needed. Like, everything was already there. And there is a theory that says, you know, when a system becomes sufficiently complex, it puts on a life of its own. That makes sense. Sure. Um, yeah, it makes sense. And that's the DC universe, and that's 52. It's so complex, it is taking on a life of its own. I believe you. Well, can you <laughs> can you answer me answer me one question? Because I'm riddle not, me this. Riddle me. Yeah, great, Tom. Thanks. Um, what what's the deal with Alan Scott's eyes? As I'm just freaking out that he lost one eye and the one eye he does have isn't his. What? Yeah. When when is that going to be answered? Yeah, I'm strange. Is. Yeah, that is Adam Strange's it's eye. It's Adam Strange's eye? Yeah, Adam Strange doesn't have well, any one eyes. One of his eyes is Adam. Who what? knows where the other Adam Strange is? When did they Strange say eye? that? Uh, the week when all the people came back from space. Oh, crap. All right, never mind. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little behind. I'm like two uh, issues behind on 52s. <laughs> let's, just, let's just say it's subtle. Nowhere does he say, I have Adam Strange's eye. It, it is it is implied. It's implied. Right. But who knows where uh, Adam Strange's other eye is? <laughs> yeah. and, was, and was it ever in Alan Scott's head? Yeah. <laughs> if I, he just had a bed, Alan Scott had like a motorcycle accident or something, <laughs> and lost Adam Strange's other eye at some point. Yeah, all Alan right. Scott had a Zeta beam accident. I think we all saw it. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what. One of the 
one of the things that has become a trademark of a lot of your work is the the strong central female character. And if I can steal a quote from As Good As It Gets, how do you write women so well? That's from Matthew Guy on the forum. Is that from Matthew Guy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, that's Matthew Guy. Or it was posted by no, Wonder no. Woman. No. Oh. <laughs> I put that question. Oh, so I, did you? Anyway, no. anyway, guys, could we let <laughs> yes. Mr. Rucka so, answer? So how do you write women so well? You just throw it in there. <laughs> I just uh, write them the way I write guys. I mean, I, I, I write them as people. What? I, just, I don't think it's a thing. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to... I don't know how to answer that anymore. Um, I'm sure there are people who think that I don't write women very well. And I know there are some people out there who certainly feel that I don't treat them with respect. There's probably people um, that think you don't write men very well either, you know? But for yeah. some reason, when a man's writing a woman, yeah, it gets pointed out as being very specific criticism as opposed to an overall criticism, you know? You know, the thing to me has always been that there are a couple. I, I, you know, I can go into it at depth, but I think, I think the long and the short of it is, I, I think of all characters as people, and gender is an element of character, but it's the defining element. It certainly is a huge part of it. So is sexuality. So is education. So is religion. You know, so um, I. I try to be honest each character as, as, as I write them and as I come to them. Um, and some of them speak to me very clearly. Now, all of that gets coupled with the fact that I like women. I genuinely, genuinely enjoy their company. And uh, I'm... And I think that's how you get Hi, this is Andy Parks. You are listening to Around Comics. All right, guys, enough of this. 52 and Checkmate and Wonder Woman crap. We're going to talk about the real book now. Oh, That's right. It's time for me and Greg Rucka to talk about Queen uh, and Country. Oh. He's light, lit some what? scented candles. What's that? Scented. <laughs> <laughs> he's got incense. He's in a bath and he's like, let's talk about it. We're going to leave now, Queen Greg. We're just going to leave you with Chris. Alone at last. <laughs> so, Greg, when God talked to you... Oh, all right, all right, Jesus. come on. Let's <laughs> try and be civil, serious in some way. Okay, I'm going to... You know what? Okay, I, yeah, I, let's, I, I let's have to... Let's get non-masturbatory yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Um, Chris turned me on to Queen and Country. He was re- reading it long before I did, and I started Ooh. reading it in trade. Uh, because by that time it was way too difficult to try and find the issues, and uh, and I, and I really got into the book and I loved the book and 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 I've read the first I think five or six trades, um, and I and and then I found out that you stopped writing the comic and wrote two novels that yeah. interrupt the story, and I was like wow now I I mean, not that I don't read books but it it, it felt like. To some degree, I, I was being forced to have to read a novel to keep up with the story. Now I, well, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it's fair. It, 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 I, I understand how uh, you could feel that. I wanted to write the novels from the start. Um, there are things that you just can't do in a comic book, and there were stories that I wasn't going to be able to tell. Uh, about Tara in a comic, and I wanted to 
you know, I wanted to tell those stories. The way I had approached it initially was that when I first was going to write the first human sea novel, I was actually going to take the first story arc and sort of novelize it. And then as I sat down to begin work on it, I realized that that was a total, that that was just a total cop-out. Um, I had already written that story, and that if I was going to write a novel um, about Tara, I wanted it to be a novel that QNC fans would see as a valentine, basically, that would give them all this other stuff that they hadn't had access to before. And it felt to me that as soon as I made that decision that the novel was going to have to matter in the in the continuity of the series. It was going to have to it was going to have to have merit in the overall sort of Q and C canon. And to do anything else was was going to cheat. So, yeah, uh, it, it's fair to say that you know, uh, hey, dude, you, you went out there and you wrote these novels, and now if I want all my Queen and Country, I got to read the novels. And I can, you know, I'm not going to disagree with that. I will say that I tried to set up Red Panda in such a way that if you hadn't read the novels, you'd sit there and you'd go, what the hell, Tom died? But Spoilers! <laughs> what, what are you doing? I haven't gotten that far yet. <laughs> oh, well. But you'd, um, but you oh. would still at least you would still know what it. you needed to know to enjoy Red Panda, if that makes sense. It goes okay. back to what we were saying about Checkmate that there would be enough information up front that you would be able to get through the comic and be able to see the comic and enjoy the comic for what it was, and then if you wanted to know the rest of it, you could turn around and go back. In the same way that in Private Wars, you know, the line in the, in the, in the opening of the book in, in the, quote, pre-operational briefing on Chase is about Red Panda. It's like, and then, you know, she went to Iraq on Operation Red Panda and things got bloody. Things got very bloody, perhaps bloodier than they had needed to get. And that's all it says about Red Panda. You don't know anything else about the operation. So you pick up issue 29, and now you see Red Panda. But you also see, you know, sort of the, the segue between the two novels. Um, I've had at least one fan get really angry at me about having read the start of Red Panda was furious that there had been this novel and felt like they were cheated. Um, but, you know, I, I can't apologize for it. I'm very proud of the novels. I think both of them are probably the best novels I've written. Um, I think Gentleman's Game is, is, very, is a very good book, and I think Private Wars is a very good book, and I think they may well be the best books I've written so far, so... You well, know. fuck yourself. Yeah, <laughs> you don't like it. I, no. I don't, look, I, I don't say that about my own work very often. I really don't. But I'm very proud of those novels. I think they're good books. And um, and the other thing, there's one other thing. And this isn't false modesty. This is just looking at the numbers. As much as I think, you know, I love Q and C, and I am grateful for every fan who who reads it and follows the series. But the fact of the matter is, in the grand scheme of things, there aren't many of you. Mm -hmm. There really aren't. But we have really, really loud voices. And we <laughs> well, start podcasts, and, damn it. And, 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 and my feeling is that, you know, the people who are devoted to QNC, uh, it's, it's a small and devoted group. And I figured that they would, they would come with me to the novel because uh, what the novel would offer them. Uh, and that's that was really the purpose. Like I said, at the end of the day, 
I wrote the novel as a Valentine for Q and C fans. Um, I wanted to give them a special story that they just wouldn't be able to get in the comics, um, and that you know, see other folks that might pick up the book out there that had never heard of Queen of Country. Well, hopefully they'd like it, but you know, nuts well, to them. And, and I, I have two stories about that. Um, first one is my dad, who's probably never read a comic book in his life. And I gave him Gentleman's Game, and he he travels a lot with work, read it on a couple uh, plane trips, and, and he loved it. And he he actually asked me if it was written after the uh, the bombings in London in the train stations. I was like, no, he, he figured all this out, you know, before then, and he was impressed him, and, and he loved the book. And then I think what is probably even a, a better compliment is I gave it to it's another. It's genetical. I, I gave it to <laughs> another, another friend of mine yeah, yeah. who lives here in Chicago they now. But, oh, shut up, you two. <laughs> but that. I gave it to another friend of mine that, that lives here in Chicago now, but grew up in London and just moved here a couple of years ago. And he asked me if you were an English writer. Because he thought that you pegged (laughs) London and and the culture there, and and asked me, you know, where you were from if you were from England. I was like, no, he lives in lives in Oregon, and Mm -hmm. he's like, wow. So yeah, I I just do a hell of a lot of research. So, but that's 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 cool. That's that's one of my favorite uh, Brian Michael Bendis stories. Uh, uh, You can probably recount (laughs) this one, Sal. The one about the oh yeah, it was you guys did a uh, a writing panel. I think it was uh, it was supposed to yeah, it was a world two years ago, and and it was supposed to be Bendis's uh, writing panel. But you and uh, um, Ed Brubaker and Paul, yeah, and it was a it was great panel. But I remember him talking about when the two of you would would go to a you know a, a, a coffee shop and work together. On different, you know, books, you know, he'd be sitting there typing, and he'd look over next to 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 you, and and you'd be out with like charts and graphs and measuring <laughs> mileage, and he'd be thinking to himself, "I'm really not working hard enough." I, <laughs> and I just I just love that story because it, it's um, it, it's just a different approach. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, your your you stuff can, is so meticulously researched. Well, and I mean that that the Q and C requires it. If you're going to set uh, an espionage series in quote the real world end quote, then you kind of do have to know how long it's going to take you to drive from, you know, Tashkent to, you know, Air Base uh, Karachi in Uzbekistan, mm-hmm. and you're going to kind of have to know what terrain you have to go over in the same way that you're going to kind of have to know that you can put a silencer on a semi-auto but you're going to have a hard time putting a silencer on a 38 revolver you know um thanks for the tip (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) well i mean it's not you know not just the the research of you know guns or mileage or um, even what's going on in those particular organizations, but you have to be so dialed into the worldview of politics right now, or actually not even right now, because Queen and Country is probably placed in what two thousand two. Now we're probably about three, four years behind present yeah, day. Yeah, now, now we've got. Yeah, this is a whole other problem. See, this is and this is where the realism starts to break down. I can't. You know, we did a story on, like, the third story arc in QNC referenced 9 11, which dates it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, if I say, well, 
Kara is still in 2002 or 2003. You know, come on. Yeah, how am I gonna? How are we gonna make that work? Kara's stories need to be happening today, but the problem is, of course, that they have to be written six months prior to today. Um, aging her is, is a real trick. We're running into one of the classic. Uh, one of the classic problems with literature, which is, do I let her get older? Mm-hmm. Um, and well, if you've read Private Wars, letting her get older becomes very crucial considering, you know, certain developments in that novel. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and, and another thing that you've talked about in the past is the the at least the career lifespan of an MI6 agent. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's another thing. We've just, we've blown... In, in all realism factor, we've completely blown that out of the window. There's no way she would have been operational for as long as she has been. Now, I will tell you, and I mean, this is, this is the big QNC news, is that I had always pictured Private Wars ends what I view as Queen and Country Volume 1, meaning that the story arc that Chris is drawing now and that I'm finishing up, Red Tan is the last comic arc in Volume 1. And then we're going to sort of cool jets for a little bit, and we're going to start a volume two. And Q&C volume two will take place, still with Tara as the main character, about a couple years later from where we end volume one. Wow. We're going to jump her, and then we'll sort of tell stories from a new point of view and um, let the speculation begin wildly because it's not that hard to figure out what that point of view is going to be. That is so cool if I'm thinking what I'm thinking. That's the yeah, you will have to do this off. Edit this out. <laughs> now you've just about exploded his head. Yeah, really. uh, what? She's uh, gonna take over for Crocker, isn't she? I'm not gonna confirm that, but that would really be a logical extension. <laughs> oh, that's so cool! <laughs> oh God, Jesus! <laughs> oh, good Lord! He <clears throat> just knocked one of the candles into the how, bed. How long? How long do you? <laughs> Thank God it wasn't a toaster. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> the toaster oven that he was heating up, you know, muffins. Um, uh, how long do you kind of plan for Queen and Country to be alive? I mean, do you do you have a plan at all for it, or are you... Well, I'd always, uh, I'd always had one end of the series in mind, but that's now changed because I like the the opportunities that, that doing this volume two will pre- present. So at some point... At some point, the series will end. Um, but when it does, uh, I honestly don't know. I don't have any plans to end it. Uh, and frankly, the more I think about it, the more I think that by doing a volume two, we we sort of free ourselves from certain things that might have might have forced us to end the series. And in a way, by doing volume two, we've just guaranteed that, hey, guess what? We can now write this until we run out of ideas. And given the nature of the world, we're never going to. Yeah. Well, here's another thing. I mean, this is you know, a couple different things, actually. First of all, the the art teams on on Queen and Country have ch- pretty much changed every arc. I think, what, Steve Rolston is the only yeah, return the artist? Only well, and Brian Hurt. Oh, that's Brian. right, Brian. So go by the damned, everyone. By the way, um, w- w- was that planned originally, or did that just happen that you end up with different artists on every arc? No, that was intentional from the start. I wanted the opportunity to work with a lot of different people, and I wanted to let different artists sort of come in and, 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 and 
provide their takes on the characters. Okay. Well, um, we look at that series, and it is, you know, without a doubt, unquestioned, that's Greg Rucka's series. And I think the changing artist helped define that. It's not like Preacher, where it was Ennis and Dylan working Dylan. on that. This is your uh, series. But with uh, Queen and Country Declassified Volume 3, we saw a new writer. Can you yeah. see Queen and Country living on past your work on it? Yeah. I mean, I think if we get the right people and they have the right stories, certainly. I thought Anthony did a great job on, on, on Declassified 3. Mm-hmm. And it was Anthony, you know, it was Anthony who said, I had this idea for a pool, uh, you know, a story about Nikki. And I was like, well, excellent. And it you was know, fantastic. It was a story that he was going to be able to write for better than I was because I'm not as dialed in to, you know, the specific tensions between, uh, you know, the British and the Irish and, and the troubles uh, that he was, you know, that he was basing the story out of. Um, how hard I, How hard I, I would, would be, it be for you to see someone else take this series over? Uh, pretty fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, there's a difference between me going out here. You can have the keys to the car, bring it back with a full tank of gas, please. And there's another thing entirely for me to go, here, you can have my car. Um, I'm not inclined to do that right now, you know? And I, I get, I don't think there's a writer out there who doesn't invest in, in the stuff they create. Um, and the writers out there who manage to not invest in the things they create are probably creating things that aren't terribly good, I would think. Um, the emotional investment is key, you know? And I love Tara. I love that world. You know, I love Crocker's bitchiness. You know, I love I love everything about the series. It's it, because it's mine. I got to create it. Oh. I would be very very leery to hand it over wholesale to anybody. And that's very different than letting other people come and play you know play in the sandbox. Well, I, I tell you what, um, we'll we'll have you um, answer one more thing here, and then we've got uh, a couple forum posts, and then we'll we'll let you go for the evening. Uh, right. The first one then because we can, then we can do this again sometime. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Believe me, I, I might be, love that. I might be busy. Uh, you just. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I heard a rumor that someone once read Queen and Country and their cancer was cured. Chris, can you back that up? <laughs> Is that true? Is that true? Put that on the next cover. <laughs> There's an internet the Surgeon rumor. General. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's an internet uh, We have a couple of uh, forum posts that I wanted to uh, to read you and see what you thought. The first one here is from uh, Matt Fraction in Kansas City. And, Matt Fraction! <laughs> and, and Matt asks, uh, Greg, you awaken on a desert island on which you find <laughs> a, a portable DVD player and a DVD burned with three episodes of The Rockford Files. <laughs> God is merciful and kind and benevolent, meaning he burned your three favorite episodes himself on his mighty DVD burner to your exact specifications. So which three episodes are they? Um, gosh. I, they're all season one episodes. Um, probably this case is closed, parts one and two. <laughs> And tall woman in red station wax. <laughs> now I'm scared. Look it up on your Look it up on Wikipedia, people. <laughs> now I am scared. Uh, <coughs> oh, here's one from uh, Randy. That's, that's, and, the, 
so we all know, everybody knows Mr. Fraction quite well. Yes. That's just Fraction taking the piss there. <laughs> Matt, Matt, who uh, sent me the link to a website that has every answering machine message from the start of the Rockford Files on it. Nice. <laughs> nice. That sounds like something Fraction would oh, do. I, I know he's a big Rockford Files fan. Uh, oh, the Andy, the Andy Gerald uh, question. Oh yeah, this yes. is Randy. Rand- oh, uh, Andy. Randy, yeah. <laughs> Randy from Oni. Randy from Oni Press wanted to know, Greg, why do you insist on killing all of our childhood heroes? <laughs> <laughs> because I hate them. <laughs> yeah, Justice League Europe sucked. Right, so uh, yeah, I love this one, and, and and I actually got somebody somebody sent me a message after I was quoted as saying this on Newsarama. But, you know, why do you keep uh, going after the Justice League guys? And I said, because you guys make it so easy. <laughs> You're so and tortured somebody, by it. And somebody wrote me going, well, I guess that's that then. And it's like, you know what? I'm tired of your passive-aggressive shit. Well, I get, <laughs> who writes get an email to it. someone saying, well, get I guess that's it. that? They have, I love these people who are like, you're destroying, you know what? Story's not over yet. Wait, the, the final wait, issue you write. And on top of that, not real. You have huge plans for a big uh, Justice League International issue as your final comic book you ever write, where you bring them all back, and they all hug at the end. <laughs> I'm the only one that thinks it's funny. Well, should, should, They're all going to come back to life in the issue 52. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know the cover for 52 now, issue number 52. Yeah. They're all going to be looking it, it, at the camera. The cover of 52 is Beetle and, and Booster hugging. <laughs> And saying, at last, our long nightmare is finally over. Nice. Yeah. Ruck well, is what? done killing us. Yeah. <laughs> should, 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 should we ask Norton's question, even though he's he's standing here? <laughs> he, from, uh, from Mike Norton in Chicago, Greg, when, when are you and I going to work on some DC stuff together? Uh, I don't know. When are you free? He's Mike, he's, Mike, Mike, when are you free? <laughs> Why well, he wasn't even paying attention? Said he's too busy looking at comic books. Oh, okay. Well, he blew it. All right. Well, uh, shall, shall we let this poor man go take his children into bed? I think, yeah. Jesus, yeah. All right. <laughs> Let's, we've oh, uh, we've um, occupied Greg, Greg are you gonna be? are you going to be in New York in February at the New York Con? I don't know. Okay. I do not know yet. Um, I have not been invited to the show. Nobody from D.C. has asked me to come out. So the idea of staying in Portland in February or going to New York in February, right now I'm staying in Portland, but that may change. So. Okay. Well, we really missed you in Chicago this year. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't make it this year. I'm hoping to go this next one, but Good. we'll see about that, too. All right, and guys, are we are we all? I I think that's it, Greg. I I just want to say thank you, and uh, please keep up the good work. Yeah, and we'll. Thank uh, you guys. Hey, really enjoyed it, and uh, seriously, we should do it again. Absolutely, we'll we'll hold you to it. Keep killing those characters. Yep. (laughs) All right. right. Hey, you have a great night. (laughs) You too. Take care, guys. Thanks. Bye. 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 All right, there you go, guys. That wraps up the second part of the Greg Rucka interview. Thank you again, Mr. Rucka. Yay. Thank you. I'm sure we'll have him back on. He seemed like he wanted to come back sometime, and we'd be so. hap- more than happy to have him back because yes, he's a great writer and a great interview. Just you know what, what What threw me off was I didn't realize he's been writing comics for eight years. I always think of him as, like, one of the new guys writing comics. You know who another guy who's been writing comics He's, he's, he's not a young gun. Who? 
or drawing them. Chris Sumner. <laughs> Chris, nice. <laughs> nice segue. Kind of, almost a good segue. Uh, speaking <laughs> of Chris Sumner, we were amazing. able to uh, talk to the uh, talented young man. I keep calling him young man. He is young. How man. old is he's he? 27. Yeah. Oh, he's 27. He's well, 27. Well, he's, he's not that young. Shit, he's almost thirty. Then he's done. Yeah, he's out of comics. That's it. He's no. He can't be a young gun. He's gonna be Marvel Young you Gun in like three years. Chris <laughs> Sony will be Marvel Young Gun two thousand nine. Well, he will have been published for fifteen years at that point. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, without further ado, let's have a chit chat with Mr. Somni. Hello, is Chris there? Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How you doing? Oh, all right. What's new in the world of Chris Somney? Um, not too terribly much. You know, I just, uh, it took out the recycling. And, uh, <laughs> it's just, so. Newsarama Flash. Chris Somney takes out recycling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, I, I hear that you've been working on some really kick-ass commissions lately. <laughs> Newsflash. Kick-ass commissions. <laughs> the one Chris Neesman? Yes, yes, yeah. that one. Yes. Yeah. I, I, is, uh, was it working all right for you? Well, I, I tell you what, you sent me. Did you get my response on the email you sent me today? Yeah, that I uh, I was kind of teasing you. Yeah, yeah. Showing he, you the ink version. He he sends me this email that says, "Well, I've got the inks done in your commission, and it's all ready. I'll send you the scans eventually at some point." <laughs> That's a boy. There you go. So like, you're killing me. ASAP. I uh, I have a little bitty scanner. So, like, the 11 by 17 board won't fit on there. So, since I live real close to an office back, I just drive down to the office max, make some copies, shrink it down, and then I scan the, you know, like 67% or whatever it is, I scan that, and that's what you get to see. You get to see a copy of a copy. I, I, I can't wait to get it. So, everyone that uh, everyone out there listening, uh, there is actually uh, finished pencils on the on the site right now of uh, the thread that says, My Queen and Country Commission, exclamation point. Very <laughs> So, uh, uh, Chris, you know, one of the reasons that we're talking with you is that uh, is that we're going over some Queen and Country stuff today. Which you're, uh, what just finished up the the third issue for should be hitting uh, hitting shelves here in a few weeks. Yeah, issue thirty one. Mhm. And then you're on you're with a on very surprising ending. I'll, I'll say that much. Nice. And then yeah. you're on, and then you're on for one more issue after that, correct? Yep, I'm up to issue thirty two before they reboot. With issue number one again. Ah, very good. And and thirty two. Uh, has Greg mentioned what's going on with that? No, we're 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 gonna we're gonna get back to, uh, to that in just a few minutes, and we're actually we're just up to uh, what Gotham Central, so we're working our way to Queen and Country. Oh, okay. <laughs> We've been holding okay. Chris back, you know. He's we actually yes, he told us everything that happens in <laughs> Queen and Country. Let's see if you can uh, cooperate that. So what happens in issue thirty two? Well, Terrence dies. No. <laughs> no. Well, for for our listeners that uh, that maybe aren't familiar with you, Chris, um, you know, you, where did you get started in comics? I mean, you, we we learned of your amazing talent from uh, from uh, Andy Parks, Andy and, Parks Capote and, Capote and Capote in Kansas. That's where I first saw you. Um, but what had you done before that? How did you get into comics? Um, gosh, way back when. Uh, my grandma actually bought me my first comic. When I was five or six, with old Tom Mandrake issue of uh, Batman, and uh, it was like in a three pack from Venture, you know. And uh, I, I 
read those three over and over for weeks, and I decided right then that's what I had to do. You know, I, I wanted to draw comics, so we would go back to the store every week, and I would try and dig through their their junk and try and find more comics, and started going to flea markets all the time, and somehow amassed way too many comics to sit in my office, and uh, I'm gonna, I, you know, never look back. I, uh, my first published work was when I was 15. Um, it was for a book called Big Bang Comics. Uh, came out from Image. It was a uh, kind of 60s spin, like the old Silver Age DC stuff. They're, it's kind of an homage book to uh, stuff of the old days. But I, uh, I had some different influences back then. I was uh, really into manga and anime, so my style was kind of anime-influenced at the time. So don't... Don't seek it out. You don't really want to see it. But, um, well, I'll let you well, in on a little secret. We we all hate you because you are so <laughs> disgustingly talented, and we we hate you. We hate you. If you weren't such a nice if you weren't such a nice guy, we'd really hate you. But <laughs> there's plenty of other people you can hate. <laughs> your your stuff is I and I don't want to gush too much, but. It, for everyone out there, if you haven't picked up Capote in Kansas, it is really one of the prettiest black and white pieces of work that I've seen in comics. It is amazing. Oh, come on. Oh, it's gorgeous, <laughs> dude. The way that the way that you use light and dark, the, the fact that it, whenever you draw something and there are lines that could be there and you are just have this, I don't know if it's an in, instinct. It has to be instinct because you're like 12 years old. <laughs> But yeah, Andy keeps trying to pass that rumor around. I'm really like twelve. But, but the, the, I, I'm going to be 27 this year. So yeah. Old man. Old man. 27. Yeah, old I, man. I can almost uh, remember 27. <laughs> you know, but I mean, your style is is this great exercise in in positive negative space, and where there could be a line, you drop it out. There's there's a great commission. Uh, that you did of a fight with Kevin and Marv from Sin City, and just to look at that piece and and see the form that you create by what's not there is so cool. I'm just stealing from the best. It's not like I came up with it on my own. <laughs> I mean, people have been doing this for years. You know, I just, <laughs> you're not oh going to. Hey, oh, hey, oh, Tom, Chris, Tom, just, Tom just dug through the quarter bends here and, and pulled out Big Bang Comics. Number two. Is it's that, not, it, it doesn't have you on it, but I'm looking for one. But they have a ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> I might be able to find one. Oh, we're looking. <laughs> he just dug up. Well, no, you know, and we talked with Andy about this, and, and it's something that a lot of younger artists don't have sort of the confidence in doing in what you do as far as, as making those decisions to... And that's what impressed me. Like I said, when I first read Capone in Kansas, I didn't know who you were. I had no idea. And then I met you. Um, actually, I met you before I read Capone in Kansas because I bought it from you. But um, but after I read it, I'm like, wow, I couldn't believe you know how young you were and how, you know, and how I hadn't seen your work before because... You have the confidence of a very experienced. You draw old. <laughs> you well, you just <laughs> well, you, you have yeah. that confidence that a lot of artists don't have in their work to make those decisions, and that impressed me a lot. So, for what it's worth. Well, I mean, I've, it's not that you know, just because I'm young, I haven't drawn as much as some of the older guys. I mean, I don't really get out much, so I probably <laughs> have drawn as much as like a forty-year-old man. <laughs> I. Uh, I mean, it's practice is what, what it all comes down to. And I mean, 
you know, I, I'm kind of a homebody. So, you know, as you know, the more you do it, the more the more adept you get to be with things. So, I uh, I just had some really great influences along the years, and you know, stealing from you know Alex Raymond and David Lloyd, and you know, all the, all these guys know what they were doing. So why should why should I try and come up with something new? I mean, they know what they're they're masters of their craft, you know. So. Hey, I wanted to talk to you about um, your fill-in issue on uh, Exterminators, a book that we all love extremely, and uh, and what that experience was was like uh, just doing that one issue of the Exterminators. And are you, is there any plans of you doing any more of that? Um, as far as I know, Tony's getting, you know, Tony's all caught up. So, I mean, I know Hawthorne's going to do two issues back to back after. Issue 10 comes out, somewhere around there. Um, I don't think I'm going to be doing any more. I'm going to be pre-booked up for the next, uh, like, maybe eight or ten months. But and what are you going to be working up on? with? <laughs> I can't tell you. Oh, oh come on. It's just, you. just you, me, Sal, and everyone in the shop and all of our listeners. Just in between <laughs> us. <laughs> just in between close friends like us. What? <laughs> Click. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to build buzz later. Uh, all, right, all right. Well, a preemptive congratulations on being booked up. So. Thank you, sir. That's yeah. good to hear. It's a nice I, feeling. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. <laughs> oh, Tom oh, found it. it. Tom, Tom found, found it. Big Bang Comics oh. number one. No, it's, oh, it's uh, Big Bang Comics number 10. Number 10. Number 10. Yep, number 10. With a black cover, and it's got like uh, a character named Galahad. And there's Ninja Turtles on it? Is that right? Uh, it's, it says, Night Watch Manga by Chris Ecker and Chris Abney Plot. Oh, Chris... I told you. Oh, I'm buying it. I'm <laughs> buying I claim it. I claim it. Oh, that's you're gonna awesome. Have, you're going to have to sign that you next time so we sign see it at the next show, absolutely. <laughs> do you still have oh, the... Oh, you guys are killing me. Do you still have the original art to that? <laughs> Sitting somewhere? I got around here somewhere. You know, <laughs> What is Nightwing doing in this comic? Jesus. That was the most amount of work I've ever done for this show. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> dig through a box to find that one. I saw a bunch of them earlier today, and I was like, Big Bang Comics? I, I claim that one. It's mine. <laughs> wow, wait a minute. Roy Thomas wrote a book. Uh, wrote a... No, I mean, if you, if you dig through there, I mean, it's... Like, Garrett Carlson is awesome. Yeah. I mean, if you ever get a chance to, to meet him or talk to him, he's a great, great guy. I've actually worked with him once since then, um, maybe four or five years ago, in a book called WizKids. It was the first issue. It was just a one-shot. Go um, find it, Tom. Again, put out for images, <laughs> black and white. But it was a little closer to my style. Okay. Wow, you uh, really were into manga when you drew this, man. I'm looking through <laughs> yeah. it now. This is like, wow. I would never guess this is your art. That's amazing. <laughs> Oh, I'm framing this one. <laughs> right next to my Queen and Country Commission. Night Watch Manga. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you're you're also working on American Splendor right That's now. Awesome. Is that right? <laughs> Good job, yep, Tom. Yeah, it's coming out on October 4th. Oh, really? You're yeah, doing it this week? American Splendor number two comes yeah. out. And number two, yeah. Yep. Wow. Well, how was working with Harvey Picar? It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, I still feel like a young pup at this. But Harvey was amazing. I mean, it, it was really an honor. You know, I mean, 
his scripts are totally different than anything I've ever seen before. You I don't mean, say. If, you, if you've ever seen the movie, I mean, he does draw just little stick figures with balloons and then leaves all all the rest of the work up to you. So, I mean, it was really freeing, but, I mean, it was... It, it was definitely, you know, one of the harder projects I've had to work on. I mean, in a good way, you know? I mean, but at the same time, it's just... I worked with Harvey, Harvey Pizar. I, I mean, like, I, I can say that. What's it, what's it like working on a series that... I mean, someone like R. Crumb has done American Splendor. I, that... oh, I mean, there's so many people who've done so much better job at it than I have. Um, <laughs> Another self-deprecating artist. Well, here we go. No one's done Watch, Man- hard, Watch Manga, though. <laughs> Watch Manga. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, when I sat down and I was trying to figure out how I was going to draw Harvey, it's it's hard, man. I mean, when you got R. Crumb sitting next to your desk and all the other guys like uh, Dean Haspiel, I mean, how, how can I top that? So I just had to set it all aside, you know, put it on the, on the bottom of a pile and figure out how how I would draw it. Have you? But, uh, I mean, it's been a while since Harvey's had any books about him nowadays, you know, so it's a little, you know, he's a little older now, so, you know, my style can maybe fit a little a little easier. You know, it's not cartoony as it, uh, the old stuff used to be, so. Have you been uh, paying attention? Know. Speaking of Dean, uh, have you uh, been paying attention to his stuff on Activate? Okay, you broke up on that one. My phone's uh, um, ha- Have you uh, paid attention to any of the stuff Dean's been working on on a- Activate? The, uh, oh, I can't think of the webcomic that he's doing. I can't think of the name of it now. Um Damn, I wish I could think of the name of it. I'm going to go pull it out of a box. <laughs> no, it's not in a box. It's on a computer, Tom. Sorry. Oh, well, anyway, it well, doesn't hey, matter. It doesn't s- matter. Since we are talking uh, to Greg Rucka today, what's it what's it like working with Greg, and what are his scripts like compared to somebody like Harvey P. Carr? Uh, polar opposite. I mean, it's it's still, it's, it's great to be able to work with, with somebody of, of Greg's caliber. You know, the same with working with Harvey P. Carr, but his scripts are... are are really dense. I mean, he knows he knows what he wants. I mean, sometimes you get you know camera angle or something, but that's you know few and far between. Usually, it's it's all about the emotion and what's going on with the characters. It's you know I, I, I love a challenge, so getting work with with Greg is is, is pretty awesome. Well, I, mean, I mean, that's one of the things. About- Twenty two pages to get you know. <laughs> I mean, there's probably a dozen pages in an issue of just people talking, and to to be able to pull that off is uh, is, is no easy chore. Well, I mean, that's one of the things about Queen and Country is that, and they are cracking up about this comic. So Sorry, I'm no, no, I'm trying, I'm trying <laughs> gotta, to keep the, I, I the gotta, panel I straight I gotta ask here. Chris a question here. Um, <laughs> how did you get the na- the nickname Skippy? <laughs> because it says in here. Um, while at the 1996 St. Louis Comic Convention, Chris Ecker and Gary Carlson of Big Bang Comics met 15-year-old artist Chris Skippy Somni and fell in love with his <laughs> his manga-influenced cartoon. Oh, my old nickname, even. <laughs> oh, this is so getting scanned and put on the website. Oh, don't put it on the website. No, but, yeah, I bet you wish you had never mentioned that. You should have been like, I my first published work when I was 15, and I can't even remember it was what it was. Watchmen. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, for the for the time, I thought I was, I was doing a good job. Oh, for fifteen? Are for you fifteen years me? old? I, I mean, it's pretty damn good. I haven't for done 15. anything. I mean, and I'm twenty-eight. It's better than I could draw now, so yeah. I can't really. We're just giving you a hard time. Well, for a while there, I felt like I was uh, I was mimicking uh, Eric Larson's life. You know, I mean, Eric Larson's first job was with uh, with Gary Carlson uh, working on Megaton Comics, where Savage Dragon made his first appearance. Sure. And then he went off to AC Comics. And I did AC Comics afterward, and I was like, yeah, look out. I'm going to be drawing superheroes before you know it. You are on your <laughs> way, young man. You're on yeah, your and way. Yeah, you know, fork in the road, and I just, I, uh, I keep drawing real stuff. <laughs> yeah, I haven't drawn too many tights. Uh, not, uh, well, you know, back, the question I was, I was getting ready to ask before they started cracking up over there was... Uh, each arc of Queen of Country has had pretty much a, a different artist. I think Steve Ralston's the only guy that, that's made a return to the series. You know, how much did you look back on that that entire series and, and take into account the, the work that had come before you from guys, you know, Ralston and, and Mike Norton and, oh, there's, I mean, a whole, a whole list of those guys. How much of that uh, filtered its way into your work on the series? I still look at it every day. Every day. I mean, I, I'm still using the same backgrounds that Rol- that Ralston did in issue one. So, I mean, I'm trying to keep it as consistent as humanly possible. You know, I mean, it is a real world to the readers, so I don't, I don't feel like you know I should jump in and try and switch things up too much. I, uh, I try and each one of the characters they already have, you know, everything is built in. I'm just I just have to draw them in my style. So, um. I mean, everybody who's worked on it is awesome. I mean, from Ralston to Norton, it's all these guys are so good. You know, it's just uh, it's just a matter of trying to put my spin on each one of them. Um, and uh, hopefully, I'll have left a mark by the time I'm done. But uh, you know, like my my Terry Chase looks a little more like the way Brian Hurt draws them. Mm-hmm. But you know, Nick Poole looks like the way that. Uh, that Mike Hawthorne did it. So, you know. And you got guys like what, Christopher Mitten, and I, and I forget the, the, the guy who did the, um, oh, the the fourth arc, uh, Blackwall, Operation Blackwall, and, and that totally different style. Who, who did yeah, that? Another local boy. Who was who that? Rick Burchett. Yes, yes. And that was yeah. such a, a dark and, and not gloomy, but, you know, just really intense art style. And what, what's been amazing about that series is that the story has been able to stay consistent and you never feel like it misses a beat, even though some of the artistic styles have been so incredibly different through that. And that's, you know, it's got to be interesting from, uh, from the standpoint of an artist to be able to put your mark on those characters in that series. Well, I mean, it is Greg's book to begin with. I mean, and he can carry the mood whether, you know, no matter who's drawn it. I mean, the mood carries through in the story. So, I mean, you can get super cartoony or you can get you know crazy realistic and uh, it'll still be the same book i mean i think it could be the same book in color i mean we'd probably have more readers but it would still be the same book i mean if it were in color maybe we'd be getting some check market checkmate numbers but <laughs> what are you gonna do well i mean is that with, with your art style and i i admittedly haven't seen a lot of your color work but your work, well, it, it works so well in black and white. Do you feel like that limits you 
in in what you can do as an artist because you do work so well in the black and white part of the medium? Well, I think, you know, no matter what, before it gets to color, it has to look as best as humanly possible in black and white. So I just try to make it look as good as I can and then pass it off to the colorist and they'll do what they can do. Um, but, I mean, you do have to come at it with a different mindset. I mean, some people, I think, just draw and pass it off. But, I mean, with my style, where I I usually don't use a whole lot of lines, I don't do any contour lines, nothing that will close off the space. You know, with the colors, you have to worry about, you know, closing off a line so that they have an area that they can point and click, you know, a certain color into. And, uh, and I've never really worried about that. So... When it actually does go off to a colorist, I have to sit down and make a conscious decision to close off my lines, and then my style looks a little different by the time I'm done. Um, but I mean, really, it just—it just met. It's, just, it's you know, just trying to make it look as, as best as humanly possible when you're drawing. Hey, by the way, I did want to mention uh, Mike Norton. He he comes to our uh, website uh, every once in a while and and posts stuff. And he mentioned, uh, I think it was today or yesterday, um, how much he likes your work on Queen and Country, and especially um, your version of what was the character? Uh, I can't remember. Chris, do you remember the character? Chris, Chris, Chris yeah. Sorry, buddy. He's got a mouthful of pizza. You can't answer. Chris Langford. Langford, yeah, yeah, he 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 said he really loves the way you draw Langford, even though he had he had uh, created that character or or helped create the design. He, he waited for me to take a bite to ask me that question. <laughs> well, I mean, Mike's a great guy. I love Mike. Unlike his website, I hate Mike. I love Mike. <laughs> He's awesome. We love Mike too. Um, yeah, I either last year or the year before I traded him a drawing of uh, of Gravity for a drawing of Spike um, from Buffy oh cool my wife has a, a Buffy sketchbook now uh, he said that he framed it on his wall which is an honor oh that is so cool yeah well he and, said he said on our forum today that, that you own him so <laughs> I don't know about that I'm not sure what that means. No, man, I, He's like Chris Samney is so good. He owns me. You know? He owns you. <laughs> but no, we we love Mike and and his. You talk about a guy that I'm just screaming for him to get on a regular book. He is so good, and I'm just ready for him to get you know a 12 issue run on a book where we can really see him develop some characters. He's so fast. It's insane. I mean, he puts out like a dozen books a month. I mean, that's the kind of, that's like the, uh, the kind of output of a writer, not an artist. I mean, like last month he had like six books out. It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, what what you what what you, how how many pages can you do a day? What five six? <laughs> um, I can usually pencil. Gosh, I really don't want to say. Ah, <laughs> you can fudge, you can lie, and tell us later. Well, I do. I usually do a page a day. Um, and pencils, I can do probably two um, if it's an easy day. I mean, it, it it varies from day to day. Some days I only work eight hours. Some days I work sixteen. So. Well, I I can see your inks actually being pretty um, pretty time intensive because I mean you do, oh, it's a lot of brush work and you know it's but you know I ask you the 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 page thing because 
we started talking about this commission, which is amazing. And if if your commission, <laughs> he's sch- not giving you a discount. Ah. So quit kissing his ass. <laughs> if your commission schedule is, is fairly uh, fairly free, I would definitely encourage people to uh, to uh, track Chris down and and get one because it was amazing. But we started talking about it, and like the next day, you said. You know, here's your pencils, and I was just like, "Wow, that is amazing!" I was, it was, I was really shocked at at how fast you're able to get something and, and peg the ideas as quickly as you did. Well, I, I mean, I'm fairly quick when I when I put my mind to it. Um, the uh, the inks on your piece took about four and a half hours. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's not a you know a sequential page or anything, but I mean, there's there's quite a bit going on, so I took my time on it. I am um, not. I'm not paying nearly enough. For this, because <laughs> why would you say that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, because I then. because I already paid him, so, but oh, I don't okay. have the art. I mean, yes, the price is right. Someone's not going to get the inked version. <laughs> Keep I'm just going to light box it and give it to you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, hey, okay. where did you grow up, Chris? Uh, in uh, Desoto, Missouri, the suburb of uh, of St. Louis. Oh, all right. There's actually a song by uh, Sunvolt called "Tear Stained Eye," which is about Desoto, Missouri. <laughs> well, quite the reference. <laughs> wow, oh, Jesus! Woo, pulling that one out. Uh-huh. I dug a book out of a quarter box. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you ever do? <laughs> 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 got any woos kids back there? <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, we uh, I also did some issues of Fem Force. If you want to dig around, Fem Force. <laughs> Go for it, Tom. We'll have that for next week. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Chris, it was so good to talk to you, and and we definitely want to have you uh, have you back whenever you have that big announcement that you're that you're you know, closed can you, down. Can on. you tell us Marvel, DC, or is it independent cr- independent work? Throw us a bone. Give us something, man. All right, it's gonna be uh, DC Vertigo. Nice. Yes. All right. Much applause. All yes. right. That is that is awesome. Well, I tell you what, buddy, great to talk with you. We'll talk to you again soon, but uh, we need to, to get back with uh, with your your co-creator on the last arc of uh, Queen and Country. And uh, man, you have a yeah, great one. And I'm looking forward to my commission arriving in the mail. All right, man. I'll scan it out um, sometime this weekend so that you can see it. Sweet. <laughs> but, uh, but give give Greg my best. Absolutely. Any any secrets right. about Greg you want us to yeah yeah you got drop a que- on you got him? a question for question Greg? for Greg anything no no just tell him I said hi and I uh, you know if you don't you if know. you don't have a question we're gonna have to make one up <laughs> why are you such a dick <laughs> yeah yeah here's that one <laughs> no no don't say anything mean just no. tell him I said hey that's oh. all okay Skippy says hello Skippy says <laughs> hello. <laughs> Well, Chris, That's uh, not for anything nasty, by the way, when I was a when I was a kid, I looked like Skippy from Family Ties. Oh. <laughs> so that's where that nickname came from. But you're so, I mean, you're such a rail now. You you're like a 12 year old who weighs like a, a buck oh five. I just don't see it. <laughs> you told me earlier this week that you're a pudgy little kid growing up. Yeah, I was a pudgy little kid. I don't see it. He wasn't a starving artist back then. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't living on Robin when I was living with my parents. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, Chris, you have a wonderful night, and uh, and we'll be in touch with you soon. All right, guys, take care. All right, see you, Chris. Day. Thanks. Bye, bye. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye.
All right. Thank you so much, Chris. Can't wait to get my commission in the mail. Really looking forward to it. And I'll post it on the forum. Anyone that wants to come and gaze upon its its beauty, you can do that. So, there you go. That's right. awesome. Now we have a new, uh, uh, a not a new, I was going to say a special interview by Mr. Tom Cater. It's like the interview episode. Yeah, it's like yeah. worse than the we had like convention eight episodes. Eight people on this show. Um, but you know what? I'm not going to kiss Black Bolt's ass. <laughs> you know, just listen to listen to the interview. All so right, we're not, I'm all not right, happy. All right, let's hear it. I'm happy to be back with another special interview with another one of my favorite characters in comic books. This week is with one of the, dare I say, best email writers of any person I've ever corresponded with. Just long missives with just such great detail and such wonderful word choice. So well, let's let's let him speak for himself. Uh, I'd like to welcome Black Bolt to the interview. First question: Inhuman. How do you feel about being called inhuman? Okay. Um, well, let's see how it works. Is I'm going to ask you questions and you have to you have to answer. So let's. Um, I'll just edit that. I'll edit that out, and uh, let's go again. Inhuman or inhuman? Okay, you, listen. You have to actually answer the questions. All right. Well, uh, maybe that's not okay. Let me start off with a different question. Civil War. What do you think? Okay, well, if you're just going to sit there and stare at me, um, this interview is going to be really short, and frankly, you're going to look like a dick to everyone. All right, I can... You know what? Fine. I'll sit here and I'll stare at you as long as it takes. All right? If you want to play it that way, I'll play it that way, okay? You know, we, we had John Byrne on, and he answered questions. And he's famous for being mean. Nope, still not going to answer anything? All right, fine, fuck you. Interview over. This is ridiculous. You know, you know how much a cab costs to hire someone to drive to the blue area of the moon and bring you back? It was $2,000. That's the budget for the year. Just keep going. Yep, that's fine. That's great. You can walk your ass home. You know, I've never been treated so badly by anyone in the comic book industry. Anybody. All right, fine. This is over. This is over. All right? Fuck you. <laughs> that, uh, that was quite an interview, Tom. Yeah, he was a dick. I think you handled yourself well. You didn't say one fucking word. <laughs> You know he can't, Tom? He can't or he won't. <laughs> Do we know that for sure? Well, he could, but he'd kill you. Tom, Tom he, I, yeah. His daughter's hair is like totally retro ugly, and his dog is huge. <laughs> all right, he all right. We don't need to him. insult. He can, he can go fuck himself. We don't need to insult. All right, that's Tom's interview with Black Bolt. I can't wait for the next one. I yeah. can only imagine who it'll <laughs> you know be. It's gonna be it's gonna be Black Bolt interviewing Black Bolt. 
<laughs> Get ready for three minutes of silence, the laziest interview ever. Good work, Tom. That's yeah, thank you. All right. All right, thanks, sir. Uh, guys, should we, should we pull this bus into the station? The short yeah, bus? I, uh, the short bus. That's for sure. All I think right. we've done enough for one week. What enough damage? Uh, <laughs> my relationship yeah. with my girlfriend. You know, we, we, we've, got, we've got some listener emails. We're going to carry them over to next week. Thank you, everyone. We will get to those. We've got another uh, listener voicemail. So, yes, hit that uh, hotline. We will definitely play your messages. So we've got one from uh, uh, our buddy David D. in New York. We'll, we'll get to that next week. Um, Comics Podcast Network. Uh, check out the CPN and all the great podcast network or the great podcast there at comicspodcast.com uh, check out the forum at aroundcomics.com uh, September contest LCS challenge iTunes reviews thank you to our sponsor you've heard it all before. I would like to thank everyone Greg Rucka Chris Somney Black, Black Bolt, Bolt. <laughs> Dave Wachter Dave Wachter uh, everyone have a fantastic week we'll be back again on Monday with another full length episode in the meantime we'll be everywhere in and, and around. around. A loud and crowded Com- comic shop. Comics. <laughs>